Did you know Las Vegas wasn't desegregated until 1960? Today on CityCast Las Vegas, I chat with Dr. Clay T. White, director of UNLV's Oral History Research Center. She takes us back to March 26, 1960, when one of Vegas's most interesting agreements takes place, but not on paper. It's Wednesday, March 22nd. I'm Vogue Robinson, and here's what Las Vegas is talking about. Hey, Miss Clay T. Welcome to CityCast Las Vegas. Hi, Vogue. It's wonderful to see you. Mm-hmm. So prior to desegregation, why was Vegas called the Mississippi of the West? So Las Vegas was called the Mississippi of the West because of the harsh segregation practices here. Mm. So harsh Jim Crow practices, we can say. At that time, we had Jim Crow practices across the country. So I could really call any place, any city, any state in the country, the Mississippi of whatever, because we were just part of the problem. It was not a unique problem. It was a systemic problem across the country. And somebody was just uh, creative enough Mm. to describe Las Vegas and sometimes Nevada in that way. Because Mississippi, as you know, was one of those places that was probably the most harsh in its treatment of African-Americans. So because Las Vegas had all of those practices, like African-Americans not being able to go into the front doors of casinos on the Strip and downtown, and that they could not live in certain communities, and that jobs weren't always available to them, no matter what their skill level, Mm. jobs were not available to them. Let's say on places like working on the Hoover Dam or other jobs like that, that were actually federal jobs, but Blacks were not allowed to work in some of those positions. Do you think our status as a tourist town was a factor? This is a town where tourism is our primary industry. And yes, at that time in our history, it had a lot to do with how African-Americans were treated. When tourists were coming here from places like Mississippi and like the oil men from Texas, they did not want to spend their entertainment dollars and those hours surrounded by people of color. Mm. They wanted to spend it with people who looked like them. They were not astute enough to realize that African-Americans were equal to them in every way. So they didn't see it that way. They, They didn't look at the world as a cosmopolitan place. They looked at it in black and white. And that's the way they looked at it in Texas and in Mississippi and in Alabama and Arkansas and North Carolina. And I could continue to name states. So they would come here for their entertainment, to relax, to be treated and pampered. And they did not think that that kind of pampering could be extended to people of color. Sitting there beside them at a table in an upscale restaurant, 
or at a gaming table or watching Sammy Davis Jr. perform on stage. Hmm. But how raggedy. Yes. How yes. raggedy, Miss Clay T. Yes. Like, I just, it's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I understand. And that's why I said it like that. Mm-hmm. And so that's why this place was looked at in the way and why tourism looked like it did at the time. And when we talk about tourism, you know, it definitely makes me think about the Moulin Rouge as well. Now, we're doing, we were digging in, trying to get our research in, but what was the Moulin Rouge Agreement and how did it come about? So at the beginning of March, NAACP National Office in New York sent letters out to branches all over the country. And they thought it was time to uplevel the protest, the move toward integration. So when Dr. James B. McMillan, the first Black dentist here in the city, who was also serving as the president of the NAACP at the time. When he received that letter, he decided that he wanted to act. Now, he did not tell anybody what he was about to do. He sent a letter to the mayor of the city, Mayor Cregan at that time. And he told the mayor that if integration did not take place by March 26, 1960, that African-Americans were going to march on the Las Vegas Strip on a Saturday evening. And that was enough to get the Black community, the Black leaders in conversation with the owners of casinos and with the power structure here in the city. Okay. So he issued an ultimatum that was pressure to say, okay, you want to keep your nice, pristine uh, tourist space, you know, yes. free from any anything that looks like real life, what's really going mm-hmm. on, then we got to open up these conversations. And so that's why they started. It was a two-week period once the letter was received. There was a two-week period that negotiations went back and forth. We know some of the ins and outs of this because of newspaper articles and because of the book that James B. McMillan wrote. He wrote a book called Fighting Back. So using that book and going back to look at all the newspapers during that period in March of 1960, you can piece it all together, what happened. And where did these conversations take place? I shouldn't say conversations. There was a man who owned a small casino on the West Side, and that person acted as an intermediary between the Black community and the people on the Strip making the decision. And he would go back and forth with messages. The people who ran the casinos at the time didn't put a whole lot in writing. Therefore, this Moulin Rouge agreement, once they said, yes, we're going to integrate this city on that day, it is not in writing. Wow. Researchers come here to the university and they ask to see the Moulin Rouge agreement. It was a verbal agreement. What? I definitely thought there was some paperwork somewhere. So how do you trace it? So it's just... From the, from the author's book. Tell me his name again, because it definitely came away. Oral Histories uh-huh. from Dr. McMillan's book and from some newspaper articles at that time. Because Hank Greenspun started the Sun newspaper, ran the Sun newspaper, he was a member of the NAACP. So he wrote up in the newspaper what was going on. 
So that's why we can look at newspaper articles because Hank Greenspun was there. Wow. And and the photograph that we have of the Moulin Rouge that morning, Hank Greenspun is sitting right there beside Dr. James B. McMillan. Hey, it's David Figler, and one of my favorite food festivals is coming back to town. It's Vegas Unstripped over at the Palms Hotel on Saturday, May 18th. Over two dozen chefs from some of Las Vegas's most talked about restaurants creating original, unique menu items they've never made before. Chef creativity at its best. We're talking chefs from Partage, Esther's Kitchen, Milpa, EDO, and more, including this year's James Beard Award finalist Steve Kessler from Aroma. Tickets are $150 and are all-inclusive of food and drink, so you don't have to pay for anything once you're inside. No hidden up charges. I went last year, and it was so crowded in the best possible way. We got one remarkable dish after another, and while it was a little indulgent, here's the best part. The net proceeds go to local charities. So head on over to VegasUnstripped.com to get your tickets now. We'll see you there. So let's talk about this day, March 26, 1960, the day this yes. agreement was finalized. What, what were the terms of this verbal agreement? So supposedly they had terms like African-Americans will be able to go into casinos, to gamble, to have dinner in the restaurants, and to enjoy the entertainment, go to the shows. Now. Also, they talked about jobs for African-Americans in some of the positions where African-Americans weren't allowed up until that time. But that part of the agreement was so slow coming that in 1971, we get the consent decree. So that's the difference. Immediately, we could see African-Americans being allowed to spend their money. Mm in these casinos and hotels. They can now rent rooms, they could go to shows, have dinner and gamble. So they could spend their money. Right, this is very green, this is a green conversation. But we didn't see the jobs coming rapidly as we saw those kinds of practices being put into place. Mm-hmm. Now, and some of those practices were not overnight. So that evening when people went on the Las Vegas Strip, and they tested this agreement, the agreement held in all of the places that were tested, except the horseshoe. And there is a casino that's Las Vegas spelled backwards. So those were two of the places that didn't adhere to the agreement immediately. But within the next few weeks, they adhered to it. But we also saw articles in newspapers over the next two or three months that somebody would come to Las Vegas and they had a reservation in advance and that reservation was not honored. Now, after a while, after two or three months, we began to see those diminish completely. Mm. So not everything took place within that 24 hour period, Right. but 
gradually we saw all of it happening. Now the jobs, that's the portion we did not see taking place immediately. A woman told me not very long ago that she became the first black cocktail waitress in 1964. We know that Caesar's Palace opened in 1966 with black cocktail waitresses and black bartenders. But that portion of this agreement was so very slow that in 1971, the NAACP, under the leadership of Charles Keller, the first black attorney in Nevada, a consent decree was put into place. And the courts forced 17 hotel casinos, five different trade unions, and the Nevada Resorts Association to do something about integration in the city. And this consent decree then outlined a whole array of jobs that were now available for Blacks, 12% in lots of categories. So that's what had to happen to reinforce the verbal agreement that happened at the Moulin Rouge on March 26, 1960. Yeah. I'm curious, like, what was the local and national response to this agreement being upheld, even if it was slow coming? I am not sure that there was a national response to the integration of Las Vegas. The local response was overwhelming because people can now go into hotel casinos. It made a great difference in the kind of jobs that people began to seek. That was the portion, of course, beginning in 1971, which to me was the most influential part of this agreement, that now we could see African-Americans becoming Baccarat dealers, mid-level management positions at places like the Desert Inn and the Dunes and all kinds of other casino hotels here. At the same time that, uh, that this is happening in 1960, we began to see uh, just an up-leveling of people migrating here, people wanting jobs and beginning to migrate here. Yeah, that is cool. I think about these big changes, and I think about my sister, who is now a cage manager at a casino. You know, These positions today are just so commonplace, we don't think about them anymore. But every once in a while today, I will walk into a casino. Don't go into casinos very often. But when I go into them to have dinner or to see a show, I look around for the number of Blacks on the Mm, casino floor. Yes. And sometimes I don't see as many as I think I should see. But I know that it's possible. I know that the possibilities are limitless here now. Mm Mm-hmm. I still hear people refer to Las Vegas as the Mississippi of the West. Why do you think that is? And do you agree? So even today, when we are privy to positions throughout the Las Vegas Strip and throughout all job categories, sometimes we still hear people talk about Las Vegas and Nevada being the Mississippi of the West. And I think that has to do with systemic racism. Systemic racism exists today. It exists all across the country, just like Jim Crow, the individual kinds of punitive actions. Systemic racism still exists. It means that African-Americans today don't get the same kind of financing for houses. Mm -hmm. 
It means that banks still draw red lines around communities and they don't loan money into those communities. Right. Systemic racism talks about medical care being inequitable between blacks and whites. Systemic racism and or structural racism teaches us about police brutality, the justice system not passing out justice on an equitable basis. So any system that I can name in this country, we see that African-Americans are not treated equally. And we're talking about today, 2023. And people will say, well, that's not true. And I began to give them examples. In February of 2023, in Los Angeles, California, City National Bank was fined $30 million by the Department of Justice because they found that they were redlining in Black and Brown communities in Los Angeles. So that $30 million will now be put back into those communities so that those people can buy homes just like anyone else. Mm -hmm. That's why we're probably still called that old nickname from way back when that could still apply any place. It can apply in Florida. It can apply in Chicago. And I'm naming those places because we have great examples on the national news about systemic racism in those places. So all of those places can be called the Mississippi of the South, the Mississippi of the Midwest, the Mississippi of Southern California. We could do that. I could go, I could do this all day, but that's not getting us anywhere. We know it exists. Now, what are we going to do about it? How do we stop that? How do we stop those practices? So African-Americans have to be in the room. We have to be in the room where decisions and policies are being made. And that's why it's great that we are now being elected to offices, statewide, local, national. That's the only way that we are going to be able to level this playing field. Yeah. Thank you so much, Ms. Clay T. Thank you for making time to join us on CityCast Las Vegas. You're the bomb and we appreciate you. Thank you so much. Now let's hear some news. What's going on, David? Well, Vogue, President Biden yesterday followed through on his commitment to make the Avikwame area Nevada's fourth national monument. The new designation protects the area, considered sacred by some indigenous tribes, from growth and thwarts some green power initiatives proposed there, though other uses, including hiking and off-roading, are still permitted on its half million acres. Meanwhile, Governor Joe Lombardo issued a scathing statement complaining that Biden didn't consult him before taking action and called the move a historic mistake, saying it will, quote, cost our state jobs and economic opportunity, all while making land more expensive and more difficult to develop for affordable housing and critical infrastructure projects. That's all for today here on CityCast Las Vegas. Did you learn something new today? If you did, share it with a friend, rate the show, leave us a review, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Take care.
So we have a photograph, but nobody was taking notes. Nobody had a recorder. Look, secretaries, the importance of, but then also the power of journalism too. Yes, but we had one woman in the room and evidently that woman didn't take any notes. Oh, it don't have to be a woman. I just need a secretary. <laughs> I need somebody to take notes. I don't care about your gender. <laughs> I care, but that don't have nothing but to do with secretarial but work. Luberta, but Luberta Johnson, the one woman in the room, was engaged in the conversation along with everybody else. Okay. 